Leslie Zemeckis is an entertainer at heart, but she's also a masterful storyteller who produces consistently excellent work in multiple mediums. In addition to her best-selling books, which focus on the history of burlesque, she's also a critically acclaimed documentarian. She's made films about a variety of topics, but they always hinge on the stories of forgotten historical figures, usually women. In 2022, she was awarded the Ellis Island Medal of Honor in part, and this is a quote, for sharing and preserving the stories of women who are once marginalized and stigmatized. These are women whose lives, whose work, thanks in large part to Leslie, are celebrated. They're not forgotten. Regular listeners will know that we've been talking a lot this season about mentorship, about how vital mentors can be to young professionals in literally any profession, and at the same time, how very difficult it can be for people to find one. In 2021, and remember, this was mid-pandemic, Leslie founded Stories Matter, which is a mentorship program that pairs professional female storytellers with young women in need of mentors. So this conversation, the one you're listening to right now, obviously it had to happen. Over this episode and the next, John and I will be speaking with Leslie about her work, about how clothing and costume have been intrinsic in her historical world building, how she started her career, and how she navigates the projects that straddle both the filmmaking and publishing worlds. Leslie knows exactly what it is like to be unabashedly fascinated by something. And she knows how to dedicate herself completely to a project. Leslie excels at doing good work well. And welcome to an amazing interview here at Little Red Village. As always, I am your host, Jonathan Joseph, with my co-host, Rachel Elspeth-Gross, and today's phenomenal best-selling author, filmmaker, and burlesque expert, Leslie Zemeckis. Thank you for joining us so much, Leslie. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. So, Leslie, we know that you have a lot of hats that you wear professionally. There's a lot of different... And in my closet. (laughs) Yes, literal and... Yeah, metaphorical. What do you think of as your job title? You've got such a wide range of projects. How would you describe your career? Uh, an entertainer. Okay. How do you, would you explain that? Like where that? Well, I mean, everything I do, it's either that or storytelling, really. I mean, from acting to directing to writing, it's all just different ways to tell a story. Storytelling is such a powerful medium. And hopefully I'm entertaining while I'm telling all these stories. (laughs) So, entertainer. We've talked to a lot of different people in a bunch of different arenas, and I think storytelling is really a through line in fashion and costume and filmmaking and writing. Being able to string together, not just like the facts, but to make it entertaining, to make it identifiable, connectable, that's such a big deal and it really affects I think the way an audience receives receives information it's not the easiest thing to do I know there's plenty of people who who struggle with it you've written really extensively about the history of burlesque your best-selling author for three different titles would you tell us what you think the definition of burlesque is just for any of our listeners who might not know it's a an exaggeration it's making fun of it was really 
burlesque was based in humor. So when you think of of an exaggerated character, they're burlesquing something. So that's really the origins of it. I mean, we've lost a lot of the humor along the way, and people just assume it's a strip show. Mm-hmm. Really humor based. So satire. It's a commentary, maybe. Maybe it's absolutely on on. You know, it was generally on the upper classes making fun of. And how did you become interested in this particular facet of fashion history? So random. I was doing a one woman show, acting in it that I that I had written, and my character was kind of based loosely on Gypsy Rose Lee and Mae West. And I didn't really know anything about them. Uh, Mae West isn't really burlesque. She burlesques, but she wasn't in burlesque. So I started looking it up. You know, what is burlesque? Who was in it? Who are these people? And I couldn't really find anything about the women beyond their, their name and what their act was. There was a lot about the comedians, the men, the singers, what happened to, the, to burlesque over time. But there, there was nothing about the women. And it just intrigued me. And just by poking around, I got connected with some people and it just snowballed. And I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to go make a documentary because I know where these people are and talk to them. And what was really kind of amazing is so many of them had never talked about it before. Their own grown children didn't know they had been in burlesque. It was really, once it really kind of died out their era in the golden era, I'm talking like 20s, 30s. 40s. After that, it was really it, it had no value to people, so they didn't talk about it. They wouldn't say, "Oh, I was in burlesque for 20 years." And but once you got them talking about it, they, for the most part, not everybody, really loved their time in burlesque, and they could make a living off it. They could work every week, all year long, which there's not that kind of industry, you know, because of film and TV and television, blah blah. But it really was something very American that kept through the wars, through the depression, entertained people for not a whole lot of money. And it was just, you know, that once I met the people, they were just so fascinating. And their story is really not told. And there's so many stories like that. And I know my own research, my own work, a lot of the time it is women. And a lot of the time it is marginalized communities. And a lot of the time it is people who maybe contributed in whatever arena, but were important in their lifetime. But when they're gone, they kind of get left behind. And that's the sort of thing that drives Jonathan and me crazy. <laughs> I mean, valued, you know. Oh, yes. Well, they, just, they just got up there and, and took off their clothes. Well, not really. They really had, they were producers and directors of their own act. I mean, they came into a theater and said, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm wearing. This is my music. And they put a lot of time and effort into it. For the most part, I'm talking in generalities. Of course, there was people who just came in for a week or two who, you know, as one of my ladies said, needed a Frigidaire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so, but, but the people that were in it for a long time really valued the art of what they were doing, the dancing of it, the costumes they loved. The costumes I love, <laughs> I can't even tell you. I mean, one of my favorite things in the world is like stuff that's made by hand. I love uh, practical effects. I love real, you know, and in costuming, there's this wonderful phenomenon that happens because it doesn't have to be wearable on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be, you know, reworn and washed and all of that. But the things that you can do with a costume, especially 
exaggerated, like in burlesque on stage. I mean, the costuming is magical. All the pearls, all the feathers, all the. For me, that's very, very. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that some of these dresses that lived through performances. You know, I have a lot. I don't have anything here in this room. They were very well made. I have a uh, one gown from Blaze Star, and she said it took her six months to sew on all those rhinestones. Oof. And she said she got it. She's like, oh, my God, that thing was so heavy. I couldn't wait to get it off. And it is heavy, but it's in great shape. I'm sure. Yeah, it would have to be to hold up to perform in. And then they're distinctive. I think that's one of the things about a burlesque costume, perhaps. Like, you could see a theater costume. You could see something for intended for film or for television. But there's something about the showmanship, perhaps. And a lot, of the, a lot of the performers had their specific style like they would dress and they would have panels or they would have a side thing or there was just you know they liked what they liked sherry britain which i do have in her someplace she always had crowns she always wore little crowns some that she I'm was thinking, thinking together and i'm thinking the musical to get yourself a gimmick yeah. there's a well, it's an early it seems like an early exercise in, in personal branding especially for these performers because they have their signature style element that they'll bring throughout their costuming. For you, Leslie, you know, was it difficult or how did you decide what to focus on when you were writing because of that individually distinct nature of all of these different performers, costumers? How was the curatorial process for you in terms of deciding? Well, first I did it home. I shot the, the documentary first behind the burly queue and I went around probably for two years with me and my friend who, you know, God bless her, Sherry Heller. It's like, hey, you want to go make a film? Sure. Okay, grab your camera. Here we go. We spent two, two and a half years getting anybody that would talk to us. Thank God, because except for maybe one, they're all dead now. And there was just a lot of stories and I wanted to weave it in about each one of them, but also over time. Because there were so many stories, then I decided to write the book. And it's it's kind of the same thing, you know, focusing on certain performers or or chapter on costume as much as I could. I mean, there's so many more stories. We'll see what I do with them. But they're really, really interesting. And then, of course, after that, Darty Minsky, who was married to Harold Minsky, which is the one name that most people know with burlesque. She became a friend and she came to me. She's like, here's all my sister Lily's sincere stuff. You need to be the one to write the book. And I'm like, no, I'm done with burlesque. Thank you. No, 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 no. I was really like, I want to be known for this. I have so many more interests. Then I started researching Lily and she was fascinating. And she's another one who she was so famous in her day that people maybe recognize the name from the Rocky Horror Picture Show when. You know, her name's, you know, God bless Lily Sincere or some other reference. But she was really in the zeitgeist in her day. She was really popular. Marilyn Monroe followed her around at clubs, kind of imitated her little talk and her certain little mannerisms you could see. When Lily played at Ciro's, a uh, big nightclub on, on Sunset Boulevard, she had this little haircut called the poodle haircut and then all of a sudden you know betty davis and all these big actors actors were imitating her 
And we just kind of forget. We All we know is the headline. Lily Sincere, she you know, had a bunch of husbands and she ended up a recluse. But I wanted to really know, you know, who, who was she? She was just fascinating. Right, because nobody is one thing and nobody is their public facing persona. Right. Everyone has influences and yeah. things behind the scene. So one of the, personally, Jonathan and I kind of geeked out over this. We love that there's like this feeding process between the film, the documentary, which leads to a book, which leads to another book. We very much appreciate extensive research. We really we like it when people are able to excel in more than one medium, right? Like one thing to be a good writer, it's one thing to be a good producer, but to be able to do multiple things across multiple formats is, I mean, that's not something everyone can do. So was a film and book the like the the purpose from the start or was that more no, organic? It was just the film, just the film. And, and you know, it was like, well, I you know, to me doing a film is is writing a book. It's chapters. It's how you lay it out. Uh, there's all kinds of ways you can lay it out, a film and a a book. So I just started writing the book. I actually like to go back between not just a book, 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 but a book and a film. But my next film, and it came through burlesque, was on the Hilton sisters, Siamese twins, who were huge stars. And that came from my research in burlesque because they were very briefly, horrifically, in burlesque. And, you know, I just, I read a lot. I, I watch a lot of documentaries and films. And so, like, something will get my interest, and it just, it'll brew for a while. And if it just keeps brewing... I'll do a little research. You know, I was thinking, is there is there going to be enough footage that I could take on the Hilton sisters? And they were because they were filmed so much. There were so many pictures. And I just, you know, then I was reading something. And I was like, oh, I have the same birthday as them. I'm going to go make a film. <laughs> that was the deciding factor. Like, there you go. Meant to be. I completely get it. I just discovered that the costume designer from Chinatown and I have the same birthday. So obviously I have to learn every single detail of her entire life. Right? Completely. I have no <laughs> doing so, research on the Hilton sisters because they started out, you know, in sideshows, in circus. I found Mabel Stark, who was the world's first tiger trainer. She was another one. I just, if I could capture that on film, if there was enough footage of her and there was, that's what I wanted. Do you feel like there's some stories you've encountered that lend themselves more to film or more to yeah. like writing? And it's all, you know, it's part, partially what you can get your hands on. I don't want to do, you know, I'm not going to go do George Washington because there's no footage on him. I did do my film Grand Horizontal, which won a ton of awards at festivals for the past couple of years. It's coming, it's streaming, hopefully in a month-ish. We're doing all the final paperwork. There obviously was no footage on them. There's there's paintings, there's mini photographs, but I found these three girls who look exactly like the real women. So I did sort of little recreations. They're not like acting out scenes, but they're kind of recreating a famous photo and I so I had enough to do it and I wanted to show the imagery of beautiful women in Paris in the 1850s and what they wore and it was a very 
to me visual thing. And I had I could do enough with these girls in costume. It's magic what you can achieve with you know the right time, the right place, the right costume always. Yeah. I mean, so much of history was just never filmed. We didn't have the technology. And I can see how that would be a challenge, especially given your your interests and the, the subject. The further you go back, it's like, well, okay, I've got to really be creative here. <laughs> I think too, there's a nice symbiosis between the subject matter for Grand Horizontal and this idea of evoking a vignette, this fleeting glimpse of this ethereal woman who's, you know, doing that work. You're going to get more than fleeting glimpses. <laughs> I'm very, I am very excited. I'm very excited that it's true. I know that you went to her apartment when you were filming part of that, didn't I think you said. Oh, really? Castiglione? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I go to everybody. I go to, I actually walk as many places as I can of everybody that I either write or film about. But yes, I did. And I, and I meant to look it up. She's either, they're side-by-side jewelry stores. It's Bulgarian in Paris. And I went into the one that she had had an apartment on the third floor that's now an office that they let me go in and walk around and just kind of like soak up the view of what she had in her later years. It wasn't where she died, but it was right before the apartment that she died. But I walked everywhere. You know, what I couldn't get in, I would at least walk by and film. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me that you'd want to see the space where someone was living, working, and with someone like her who was a recluse and locked herself in, you know, mirrors, covered up, all of that. Do you feel like you get a, a sense of a person when you see that interior space? You, you do. You also debunk a lot of rumors. I know there was, when I was looking at Lily's, people said, oh, she lived in this horrible neighborhood. Now, it might have been a little more horrible back then, maybe, but it was a beautiful apartment. It was close to Paramount. So you get a sense of, okay, this wasn't as bad. You really get a sense of the neighborhood if you, walk it you know what they saw what it was like to be in those walls and and what are they looking out at and it yeah, there's only so much you can get from from reading from the research it makes so much sense to me to be like physically in that space yeah really. i don't want to just t- i try and do as much firsthand stuff as possible i don't want to just somebody's oh she lived here and it was awful and whatever like what does that mean Right. Well, no, because then it becomes a secondhand account. And I mean, for the purposes of documentary, it's always best. I think I think the best documentarians have that same ethos where they want to be immersed and genuinely, for lack of a better way to put it in the sauce, as it were. Was there a particular favorite part of that project that stuck out to you as your favorite part? Was it walking, walking through those locations? What was your favorite part of creating uh, Grand Horizontal? I spent a, a month in, in Paris, and I also spent a lot of time. They let me just be there in a, um, she was, uh, why am I blanking on her name? She was Russian, Blanche. She was one of the courtesans, and, and her house is still there. It's a men's club. And they let me come in and actually let me film in there. And just to, you don't really know what sumptuous is and how, powerful these women were and how rich they were until you were in it. I mean, it is like a palace for a king. You've got to see that. And it's not just one room. It's every room. It's one woman with her servants living in this gorgeous 
builded home that that she created out of nothing. And there's an ingenuity there. I think a lot of the time people hear the word courtesan and they kind of turn part of their brain off. You know, it, it's relegated to just right. one particular aspect. But I mean, you're right. There is a kind of agility and a kind of networking and a kind of, I mean, in an era when women were not either able or allowed to have careers Anything. or money or own property, they could. Finding a, yeah, and finding a way to be useful and do work, whatever work might mean in that, in that context. I mean, I would be bored to death just sitting. I mean, I love sewing, but I don't want to embroider a pillow for the rest of my life. You know, it would be and definitely were, boring. Clothes were gorgeous. I mean, oh. absolutely beautiful. They were the fashion trendsetters and they were in the papers as, oh, what are they doing? Who are they with? Uh, no way. And it's when worth is becoming, you know, a thing. You've got Empress Eugenie making, yeah, patronizing. It's the beginning of what we think of as high fashion or haute couture. It's yeah. the beginning of the modern Western view of fashion. And not a lot of conversation about that. No, there isn't. And, and, and also, it's important to celebrate these women who were able to carve out agency at a time where they were, you know, that was so rare. It was so rare for women to be able to do what they wanted in the way that these courtesans did, including, oh my God, now I'm blanking on her name. I think you were talking about Blanche de Marsigny, I think is her name. No, no, I don't know why, it? but that's how it is. Like I do a project and I'm like, I'm on to the next. But who was somebody Blanche and she was Russian? But most of these women, same with burlesque, they weren't in Paris in the time it would have been worse. You, you can't marry up that much it was very rare if you were born in a social strata that you stayed there you know burlesque a lot of those women they came from really poor circumstances a lot of abuse a lot of them ran away to have a better life and by going on the stage they found a better life and they made money and they supported families and they were stars in their world and the same with the courtesans i mean some of these girls came from horrible circumstances. And, you know, there was all, like burlesque, there was different body types, there was different looks. So it's not like just this gorgeous, poor girl all of a sudden became this, this celebrated courtesan in Paris. They used their charm, they used what education they had to engage with society. And society, to a point, allowed they could go places. They could go to the opera. You know, they just, I mean, there was no way for women to move up in the world if you were born a certain social strata. No way. Yeah. And some of those challenges have disappeared and some of them remain and some of them are more maybe obfuscated, but they're still there. It's such a complicated thing, I guess, in many eras to be a woman in the world. When you're considering a project, when you're thinking about what you'd like to work on next, are there, how do you decide if it's going to be a book or if it's going to be a film? I know we said, you know, some stories lend themselves more to one or another, but do you focus mostly on looking for film projects? Are you looking more for book length projects? No, I just think, I just, to me, it's, it's obvious some of the things I want to do that that's a movie or that that's a book you have. With a different kind of deep dive into it. 
And sometimes in the book, it's of some things I'm working on now. I have to assume things because there's just no way to know. So I just really have to, you know, what is what is that person that she went through that she did this? I, I gotta assume it's because of this, and write it in such a way that it's not, you know, fact. Well, there's you know, there's all kinds of things to balance. No, of course, and this is something I come on up against in a lot of my own work is that there's not always a record. There's not always writing. And if there was, it might not be digitized. It might not be publicly available. It might not be indexed. So you have to <laughs> fill in gaps and holes. So how does that affect the writing process for our listeners who want to one day either write documentaries or want to write nonfiction like you do? Is there a difference between writing for, you know, the screen versus writing for a book? I think so because obviously film you can you've got that image which I'm also you know for last especially I was very careful about you could slant something a certain way which I didn't want it slanted I wanted just you know like this people telling their stories you know some of them were really characters I didn't want people to see that I wanted them to hear what they were saying and take it more serious you know there's lots of humor in the film but you can create different ways where you have to, when you're writing it, you have to paint it. They have to see it how you're painting it. This right. is this is how it is. You know, where it's nuanced in film because I can look at something and go, oh my God, that's, you know. Right. So she isn't, whatever. You've got so many projects ongoing and we're hearing you now even tell us about some things that you're having the works or thinking about going forward. You must have to, you know, consecutively work on multiple things, which sounds very complicated. How how do you stay organized when you're juggling two, three, five, however many projects all at once? I don't know. I mean, a fair answer. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I have stacks of paper everywhere, but it helps me. I don't think it's, I could sit and write for 12 hours a day. I don't think it's necessarily good to. If I want to keep creating, I'll maybe go sit in front of my Avid and cut something of what I what I think would be a film or doing research. Or there's there's something, there's a couple of things I'm, I want to write that I haven't figured it all out yet. So I don't need to be at that point where I'm writing a scene and I don't even know what, really what it's about yet. But, but I'll be thinking about it and I'll have a notebook and I'll take notes, of, you know, for that. And then maybe in a year or two when I'm ready to do that project. It'll be more together. Like subconsciously, maybe developing or thinking or right. finding patterns. I mean, I think an important takeaway for that, maybe because my writing process is somewhat similar um, with our books at Little Red Fashion, is you got to be okay with a certain level of ambiguity and trusting the process itself, where you sort of develop over time a knowing, as I call it where oh, this is going to come in handy later, but I can't necessarily dive into it right now, but I'm going to stick it in this pile or I'm going to make a note on the top of it with an index card and then maybe a, a highlight a certain part of it. And then, you know, two, three months later, you're like, oh, wait, this is the thing that connects to that thing. And then you end up looking like one of those people on an SVU episode where they're putting the crime thing together and there's the red string. And it, I, I love what, that you articulated that because I think, especially for the young people listening, sometimes ambiguity is scary and you want to know there's like a linear process. and this type of simultaneous creating doesn't always lend itself to that kind of linear process. And you have to be sort of uncomfortable uh, with the uncomfortable and comfortable with the ambiguity. 
And it's like you don't you don't need to be stopped because you can't go forward. You know, it's like, oh, I know there's a scene there. Okay, but I'll get to that later. I'm going to go to the scene after that because that I know what that is. You know, and it's the same with uh, I do my all my own research. I'll maybe like one quarter of a percent ask somebody to do something because I can keep all the names and all the facts in my head. For example, when I was doing Bound by Flesh about the Siamese twins, I knew there was a lot of footage on them, movie reel footage. So I went to an archive house in New York that's not very organized. And they're like, you know, there was maybe one little thing. And they said, here's some index cards. You can look through the index cards. Luckily, this happened really early in my research. I'm going through there, and on an index card, it says, Jimmy Moore's marriage. And I was like, what? It doesn't say to a Siamese twin, by the way. But because I did all the research, I knew the name. I knew the year. I knew it was like, pull up that footage, which is in my film, which has them also in it. It has this husband that one of them married. And you're just like, you know, you just have to go beyond the first Google search. You have to research every name, every place, and maybe it'll connect. I go off on a lot of tangents to see if it'll eventually come back so you can make meaning of somebody's life or, or what they did. I think the best historians do that. They are able to sort of have this hermeneutic sensibility as they go through the work that they can then hearken back to like an internal Pokedex for the younger people listening. But, you know, I think that's so important. And one of the things we talk about on Little Red Village is trying to encourage young people who have, let's say, long-term longitudinal projects, how to dissect them and break them down. And what you touched on just now was really important where it's just because you can't go forward in one part of the project doesn't mean you can't stop and say, okay, well, while I figure that out or figure it out later or find out what resource I need to get into to get a connection, I can work on this. And then maybe in the process of that, you find that random connection completely by happenstance because you're going through primary source documents. I mean, and there's interesting things like, you know, if, if I researched restaurants, what they ate, how much did it cost? What, you know, it's all just that adds the flavor to somebody's life. I wanted to know what kind of cigarettes Lily smoked. So I found out what, what was her perfume? I mean, I think it just informs a person. It helps. Absolutely. It makes a person more than just a name on a page or, you know, a label of a character on a screen. It probably helps us identify or at least sympathize. You can't empathize with who this person was or even just having those details be acknowledged, discussed, brought up really makes them more real. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Like, you have to historically put everything in the history of what was happening at the time for whatever the subject is. Well, like, a lot of mine are mostly women. So, so what was that like for women at this time? You know, what did women wear on the streets in the 40s as opposed to what the burlesque ladies are wearing? And then what's the Venn diagram there if there is one too? Like, are, are there... I said, and then also, you know, the Venn diagram of what shared similarities aesthetically do the burlesque and the streetwear have in common? You know, what maybe it's a certain textile manufacturer, maybe it's a certain tailor or a certain seamstress if they're not making their own garments. I think these are the things that humanize history and take it from the abstract into the the real for a lot of people. I think for a lot of folks history becomes this sort of ambiguous thing and all of the level of detail that you put into your work, Leslie, 
is important because I think that's how the best historians humanize and fully flesh out that ambiguity so that it's no longer ambiguous. And it also makes it relatable. I mean, it's not so, you know, Distant. like, yeah, when I was, when I was working on Mabel, Mabel Tiger Trainer, I went out with the point of view and I don't go in with any judgment or whatever, but I, I really wanted to do it because I thought, what, what kind of courage does it take for somebody to just walk into a tiger's cage? More than I have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It ended up not being about courage at all and through following other, this may be said, following other female tiger trainers and other tiger trainers male, it was love. Hmm. For the that, animal? That makes it, you know, more relatable. I mean, they weren't thinking, none of them were thinking about courage. I mean, they could have fear. They could know what the, the cat's going to do to them. But it was absolutely love that, you know, when Mabel looked at a tiger for the first time, she's like, oh, my God. And they are mesmerizing in person. I wouldn't go in a cage with one. I mean, one that's not my wheelhouse. I, I love horses, but not tigers. I hear what you're saying now. And the idea of, you know, an apex predator that could kill you and the interaction and perhaps the talk I mean, sounds a little bit, you know, exciting or exhilarating to be maybe the person the tiger's not going to eat. And there's a whole bunch of psychology in there we, we don't have to get into. But, I mean, there's a whole suspension of disbelief is so important, right? And my presumption would be that a woman, her place would have to at least be able to, you know, suspend the concept of you know no i think they were very the the ones who survived were very aware that it that that tiger wants to get them okay so where do you think the love you're just like you're not just going oh okay you turn your back what's a uh, what i'm getting is that 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 unique tension between the love of the and of the majesty of the creature of the beast of the tiger and the love of the dance that they're doing between knowing it can take their life at any moment and actively does naturally want to eat or maim them. But also the, the joy they get out of being able to do the dance and communicating with the tiger yes. so like, that they don't have that happen. Yeah. Like what will this tiger do? And every tiger's different, you know, I mean, they just, you know, one woman explains and thing. It's like using that brain to just like, what, you know, what will this cat do? What won't it do? Okay. That's what you do. That's fine. That'll be it. It almost makes me think of that scene in Silence of the Lambs, like where Jodie Foster is observing Hannibal Lecter because she knows he's a killer who can kill. But like, how is he? How is he operate? How is he going to operate? It's a similar level of sort of wanting to figure out the puzzle, almost. What a fun look at the history of such a unique art form, the amazing performers who do it, and Leslie's phenomenal work in preserving that history while transforming it into stories for all of us. To kick things off with our footnotes, I wanted to start with burlesque because I think that for some of our listeners, even though Leslie defined burlesque at the start of the interview, a more thorough definition might help explain why we at Little Red Fashion are discovering this specific area of costuming alongside the creative process for making films. Burlesque's roots begin in literature, actually, as early as 17th century, which referred to literature that mocked something noble or well-regarded. 
It was intentionally ridiculous and eventually that undertone defined the performance versions that come later. In its literary form, burlesque depended on the reader or listener's knowledge of the subject to make its intended effect, and a high degree of literacy was sometimes taken for granted. In the Victorian era, it was also known as travesty or extravaganza, relying on parody adapted from famous or well-known stories. Some years later, America imported this concept and began to morph it into a sort of variety show featuring songs and humor we might call edgy, solo actors, acrobats, singers doing some performances and often traditional English burlesque, and then maybe even a boxing match. Over time, it evolved into what we know today, with shows featuring ornately costumed dancers appearing in some state of undress, but not necessarily. Now, let's go to one of the performers of burlesque that Leslie mentioned, Lily Sancerre. If you are a Rocky Horror fan, then you might recognize the name Lily Sancerre, born Willis-Marie Van Schaak, from a line zip sung by Susan Sarandon. She was known as an elegant and tasteful performer and for her elaborate sets. From a chorus girl in LA to San Francisco, on to Vegas, Montreal, and other cities, she exuded glamour and seduction. It is even said that Marilyn Monroe was heavily influenced by her work, demeanor, and personality. She was a frequent topic of scandal in the tabloids of her day and eventually left burlesque to create a lingerie company in the 70s called Underworld of Les Sancerre. Which brings us to our final footnote, Harold Minsky. The Minsky family, which for our intents and purposes today, we'll just discuss the four brothers, starting with the oldest brother, Abe, began their business in 1912 as a humble Nickelodeon, but they went on to try and follow in the footsteps of Florin Siegfried, the famous Broadway musical review producer whose Siegfried Follies ran from 1907 to 1931. The four brothers built up a following even though their theater was initially a six-floor walk-up. The oldest brother, Abe, was the only one to stay in the business that boomed during the Great Depression despite raids all throughout its history, but then came crashing down under New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia's bans on what he saw as lewd establishments and performances. His wife, Rosemarie Minsky, was half-sister to Lily Sancerre. And that's all for today's footnotes. Thanks for listening, and make sure to give us a review on your platform of choice. See you in two weeks for part two. And in the meantime, remember, fashion is for everyone.